Welcome. My name is Dr. Jonathan Vorse, and thank you for downloading our podcast today on Working the Word. Make sure you hit that subscribe button to receive new podcasts every week. Thank you for your support at jvorse.org and enjoy the message today. Matthew chapter 23. We're going to spend some time in the Word this morning. Um, and uh, I want to talk to you about uh, the humanity of Jesus. I want to talk to you about the fact that Jesus cares about you. Uh, I want to talk to you uh, about some of the emotions that Jesus had. And then we're going to talk about seven different things that Jesus warns us about. And there's reasons that uh, I wanted to uh, talk about the emotions of Jesus before that. All right, have you ever felt like that no one cares? Hmm? Anybody here ever felt like no one cares? Do you ever, have you ever felt like that no one wants to care? It doesn't matter, just whatever, you know, all that matters to them is their life and their stuff, and everybody else can just go to heaven. Hmm? Huh? Have you ever felt that way? Well, I want to tell you right now, Jesus cares. Jesus cares about you. In fact, there's a place in the Scripture where the Bible said that He will perfect those things which concern us. Many times when I'm praying over people, I will quote that Scripture because I want it to get inside of them. I want them to understand that He cares about the things that concern us. But today we're going to look at a few emotions that Jesus has which had, which showed us that uh, he had, there was a human side to him. He was man and he was deity. He was the God-man Jesus. So we're going to look at some of those emotions today. And we're also going to look at those emotions to help us understand that Jesus can identify with some of the emotions that we have. And then we're going to talk about the fact that he cares so much about us that he issued many different warnings in Scripture about the kind of people that we should beware of. Because God is interested in us living in peace. God is interested in us in having joy. It's God's will that we'll live the blessed life. But there are choices that we need to make, and sometimes we don't know what those choices are, and that's why we have the Bible as our roadmap, as our instruction manual, to help us Find out uh, what we should be say, uh, uh, what we should, uh, the choices that we should make, the kinds of decisions that we should make. So, if Jesus didn't care about us, he wouldn't have bothered. He wouldn't have bothered about giving us all these instructions in his word. He wouldn't have bothered with teaching and training things pertaining to the kingdom of God. If Jesus didn't care about humanity, he would have never left heaven. He would have never left heaven. Became a little lower than the angels. Robed himself in humanity walked the Via Dolorosa, allowed himself to be suspended between heaven and earth on a hill called Calvary. Jesus didn't care about us. He would not have allowed himself to lay in that grave for three days or do whatever he did for those three days and then come back in resurrection and power. And if Jesus didn't care about us, he would not still be actively participating in our lives from his position where God raised him above above principalities and powers and mights and dominions and every name that is named, seated him at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible said that the purpose that he is there, why he's there, is that he ever lives to make intercession for you and I. 
So I want you to look at your neighbor right now and say, Jesus is praying for you right now. So how, how can Jesus pray for so many people? Well, he's, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. I mean, he's the Son of God. Jesus proceeded forth and came from the Father, and so he can do whatever, whatever he wants to do. And so someone would say to me, they would say, well, what is he praying over me right now? Just look at your neighbor and say, he's praying you'll get what pastor's going to teach this morning. <laughs> because the Holy Spirit is our primary teacher, isn't he? He will teach us and lead us and guide us into all truths. So I want to, to ask you, if you would, to just bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me. And we're going to ask the Lord to help us with this study today. Heavenly Father... We come to you right now in the wonderful name of Jesus and we are so grateful and so thankful that we can come to you and ask for your assistance in the interpretation of the scriptures. Touch me, God, to be able to effectively communicate. Help me to be able to surrender to you so you can speak effectively through me today. Let it find the learning places in the hearts and the ears of every single person that's here. May we leave this place well-informed and encouraged and strengthened that Jesus cares. And we give you praise, in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. amen, amen. Let's begin by talking about the emotions of Jesus. You can turn to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to end up over there and spend some time there. And while you're doing that, we'll just talk about some of the emotions of Jesus. The first one is found in Mark chapter 5 and verse 19, where the Bible said, Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go to home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. So the first thing that I want to talk about here today is that Jesus was a man of compassion. Jesus had great compassion. Jesus had compassion for the lost. Jesus had compassion for those who were learning how to be Christians. Jesus had compassion for the sick. Jesus even had compassion. He had so much compassion that he practiced constructive criticism with the scribes and the Pharisees on a continual basis. In fact, he loved them so much that he called them what they were, hoping to shock them into the reality of what they were doing. What did he call them? Serpents and vipers. That's what he called them. Now, how do you think that that would go over this morning if I stood up here this morning and said, if you don't adhere to what I'm teaching you and preaching you, then you're nothing but a serpent and a viper. That wouldn't go over very good, would it? Jesus had the ability to do that. Did it make them angry? Oh, yes. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill them. There's a place in Scripture where the Bible said, and Jesus, moving through the midst of them, made his way out of the city. And so Jesus called it like it was. He shot from the hip. Jesus was not a politically correct individual. He was a scripturally correct individual, and he was anointed to be correct. And so in the process of all of that, sometimes he had to practice a conservative form of compassion. And I'm not talking politically here. I'm talking about he had to practice a conservative form of compassion to where when people, many times that were down and out, not only would he lift them up, but then he would give them instruction, sometimes instruction that wasn't easy for the ears so they didn't find themselves in the same situation again. 
So however you interpret compassion, that's completely up to you. But I think the kind of compassion that we find in the Scripture is we find the kind of compassion where Jesus reached the down and out, Jesus cared about widows and orphans, Jesus cared about the sick, and Jesus also cared about those that were in the upper crust of society. Like the rich young ruler and like Pilate and like people like you. You know what the upper crust of society is, don't you? It's just a whole bunch of people that are held together by their dough. That's the upper crust of society. Touch your neighbor and say, Pastor Joe. Pastor Joe. Yeah, yeah. And so Jesus, Jesus, listen to me, Jesus had compassion on them. And when Jesus met the rich young ruler, Jesus didn't say, no, what we're going to do is we're going to work on, on you in a different We're going to work on your pride. And so you can come to me tomorrow when there's a great big crowd and you can ask me your questions and then I'll answer those questions in front of everybody. No, Jesus loved the rich young ruler enough to meet him on his terms so he could answer questions pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then he told him about being born again. So Jesus had enough compassion where he was considerate with the situations and the circumstances that other people found themselves in so he could have entrance and an open door to share things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Jesus was compassionate. He was a compassionate person. And then in John chapter 11, verses 28 through 37, we find the familiar story of where his friend Lazarus had passed away, Lazarus of Bethany. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And the Bible said that they went... And, and, and got Jesus and said, Lazarus, your friend, has passed away. And Jesus started making his way toward Bethany. But by the time he got to Bethany, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And so the sister of Lazarus looks at Jesus and says to Jesus, Lazarus is dead, and the Bible says, it's the shortest verse in the Bible, the Bible says, Jesus wept. That means Jesus cried. Jesus felt emotional pain. Jesus was familiar with grief. In, in fact, the Bible says that he was acquainted with grief and he carried our sorrows. So Jesus was familiar with grief. And so we see that there in the scriptures. Of course, we know the story how that she told Jesus, had you been here before, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, roll away the stone. And the Bible said that she looked at him and said, but Lord, by this time he stinks. And then he says, roll away the stone. And they rolled away the stone. And he cried, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible said that Lazarus came forth bound in his grave clothes. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. There's good preaching right there. There's good preaching in that right there. First of all, it's a good thing that he said Lazarus. Otherwise, Abraham would have come forth and David would have come forth and the prophet Zechariah would have come forth and Isaiah would have come forth. And No, he had to clarify, Lazarus, come forth. And then when he came forth, he said, loose him and let him go. And once where there were tears, now there was rejoicing. So we see that emotional side of Jesus. We see the pain and the sorrow, and we see the joy and the rejoicing. Then in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 17, we find a place in Scripture where the Bible said Jesus actually got angry. Jesus got angry. Could you believe that Jesus would get angry? Well, I don't think that you ought to get angry. Who says? God's Word says, be angry and sin not. Anger is how we sense injustice. 
Anger is what motivates us to work towards justice, to right things that are wrong. Where we get off track is the wrong response to anger. Anger should motivate us, not incinerate us. Did you hear me? I said anger should motivate us, not incinerate us. Well, what made Jesus angry? It was the money changers at the temple. Jesus went to the temple, and the Bible said there were money changers there. And Jesus watched for a while, and what he was watching made him angry. He was watching the priest. There were people bringing turtle doves and lambs and different things like that, presenting them to the priest because they were supposed to come one time a year and do this. And the priests were inspecting them because they had to be without spot, without blemish. And so they were inspecting them and they were saying, well, I'm sorry what you brought here, this lamb. It's got a blemish. It's not going to work. And so I know you can't really take it back with you and cost you too much or you might not be able to do that. And so what we're going to do is we're just go ahead and take it off your hands. But over here in these cages over here, we have some that we've already inspected. So you can go over there and you can purchase something over there. You can take it to the priest and they'll sacrifice it on your behalf. And so they would do that. And then when they left, the priests that were over here inspecting would take the very lambs and the turtle doves and whatnot that these people had given that they had said had blemishes and wouldn't work. And after that person had left, they would transfer them over to those cages and turn around and sell them. And what they were doing was they were ripping people off at the temple. They were crooked priests. Look at your neighbor and say, crooked priest. Come on, crooked. All right, all right, just, just say it like this. They were crooks, man. They were crooks. They were crooks. So Jesus watched this for a while and he finally said, you know what, in, in his mind he's probably thinking, I can't believe this. I can't. So Jesus is over there and he makes himself a little whip and the Bible said he turned over the money changers at the temple and he took this whip and he whipped them out and his cry was this, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So Jesus got angry over that. I think we should too. We'll address that in just a few moments. But I think that we should do something about that. And then the fourth emotion that I want to talk to you about that Jesus had before we get into these seven things that Jesus warned us about. The fourth emotion is that Jesus had great love. Jesus was attached to, to Jerusalem. He had a personal, emotional attachment to that city. Much like a pastor would get when the Lord calls a pastor to a particular area, and then the Lord calls people around that pastor and that spiritual leader in that particular area. I probably love Pasco County. In fact, I'm not going to say probably. I know that I know. I love Pasco County more than any county in the state of Florida. Why? Well, it's not because it's the prettiest county. It's not because it's the cleanest county. I love it because it's my assignment. It's my assignment. Jesus had an assignment to Jerusalem. He knew that's where he would be crucified. He knew that's where he would walk the Via Dolorosa. He knew that's where redemption for humanity would be purchased for all mankind. And so Jesus, in Luke 13 and 34, said this, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets and stones them that are sent unto you, how often 
Would I have gathered your children together as a hen does gather her brood under her wings, but you would not. So we see Jesus having emotional attachments to people and we see him having emotional attachments to places. And just let me say this in passing. Jesus has an emotional attachment to you. He has an emotional attachment to me. We, are belong, we belong to him. We have been purchased with his blood. That word redemption means to purchase as if out of a slave market of sin. We have been redeemed unto God, purchased by the blood of Jesus, and we're God's property. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, you belong to Jesus. Tell them that. Tell them that. So I, I shared all of this with you because I want you to see that the seven things that Jesus warns about, warns us about that we're going to talk about today in Matthew 23, those seven things actually came from a man who was not only deity, but he was humanity. I wanted you to see that there are things that bother Jesus. There are things that he cares about. Just because he has been elevated by God and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you and I, doesn't mean that Jesus has checked out of what's going on in your life and in my life. In fact, the Bible puts it like this. He's the head of the church and we are his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. In order for the hands to do what they need to do, they need a head attached to a body. In order for the feet to go where they need to go, how beautiful are the feet of them that carry the gospel of peace. They need a body that's attached to a head. And so the head of the church is Jesus, but we are his body. We need Jesus just as much as he needs us. So we need each other. That's why the Bible talks about partnership. The Greek word koinonia, we are partners together with Christ as part of his body. So I just want you to understand that the instructions that Jesus was giving were instructions that would later be carried out by his body. Matthew 23 and verse number 13, Jesus warned us against religious people who obstruct the path to salvation. That's number one. Jesus warned us against religious people who obstruct the path to salvation. In verse 13, we see Jesus decrying the Pharisees and the hypocrites. We see him decrying them because they were trying to always obstruct him. Jesus came as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. He came as the Messiah that was born in a manger. Jesus came as the fulfillment of major and minor prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus came for the purpose of not destroying the law, but satisfying the law. Jesus said, I have come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That means he finished it. He put an end book onto it, and he came for the purpose of opening up a dispensation of grace. Well, according to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all of those, according to them, then what's going to happen here if this doctrine of Christianity gets off the ground, if this teaching of things pertaining to the kingdom of God gets off the ground, if this, if this really begins to get off the ground, then what's going to happen is it's going to just blow apart the little country club thing that they had going that was attached to the law. Because the law 
was a salvation by works. Jesus came saying, we'll do one more work, we'll enter one time into the holy place to obtain eternal redemption for all humanity by sprinkling the blood of Jesus on the mercy seat and then we'll split that veil in, twi- in, to- in, in two from the top to the bottom and we're going to let God out and let man in so man will have access to the very throne room of God. And we're going to do this by finishing the law and opening up a dispensation of grace. Grace, grace, a place where people can experience the, the, uh, the abilities of God. Because you see, grace is God's abilities to do in you and for you what you can't do in yourself or for yourself. There are some things we can't do by ourselves. We need the help of God. That's why the Bible said, I can do all things, and then it didn't just stop there. It says, through Christ who strengthens me. So there are some things that we can't do on our own. We have to do them through Christ. And so I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Jesus comes, he's healing the sick, he's raising the dead, he's cleansing the leper, you know, causing the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the dumb to talk, preaching things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He's raising the dead, he's doing all kinds of things. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes are sitting over here watching Jesus sit on a mountainside and his ministry is getting larger and larger and larger and larger and all of a sudden they felt threatened. And so they tried to obstruct what God was trying to do. Jesus warned us of that. Now, I didn't have time to get into this in the first service, but I want to kind of touch it a little bit here in the second service. Every time that God starts to move in the midst of His people, there's going to be somebody somewhere that's going to tell you the days of miracles are over, the days of speaking with other tongues are over, the days of the gifts of the Spirit are over, the days of all of the manifestations and operations, the gifts, the manifestations, operations, and administrations of the Spirit that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. They're going to, they're going to tell you that all of that is over. It went out with the apostles. I want to tell you, God's Word says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He doesn't change. And we are in the dispensational church age. Jesus looked at Peter and said, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross. He rose again the third day. He ascended up into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father to do what? to look over the church. We're still in the church age. We're still in the age where there are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. The Bible says, till we all grow up into Him in all things. Too many people today are stuck in the milk phase. The Bible says in Peter, Newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow thereby. I have two grandbabies, and I've got one right now that's starting to get weaned off milk. She really, 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 really liked her milk until she got her first taste of sweet potatoes. Now, here's the principle that I want to share with you today. You're desiring milk, but if you ever taste and see that the Lord is good, there's going to be so much more 
in what you can get from the Word of God that goes beyond the milk that it will satisfy you where you couldn't have been satisfied before and it'll cause you to grow and grow and grow and grow in God. And let me tell you, it's spiritually mature Christians who reproduce for the kingdom of God and those are the ones where the Word of God tells us you will know them by the fruit that they bear. So I want to encourage you today, if you've been on milk forever, grow up. If you're a brand new Christian, stay on the milk until it's time to get weaned. But when you start to get weaned, let it happen so you can grow up and be a fruit-bearing Christian for things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Jesus warned against religious people who would try to obstruct this process. He warned against religious people who would try to keep the church at nothing but a milk stage. And here's a big one. The devil loves to keep the church in the juvenile stage. You know what juvenile, you know what that is? Well, if I don't get my way, bless God, I'll take my marbles and go down the street. I'm not getting what I want, so I'm just going to church hop. The problem with, the problem with church hopping saints is they never put down roots. And you can't reproduce if you don't put down roots. I don't care where you go. There's going to be somebody say something that you don't like. There's going to be someone do something that you don't like. A juvenile Christian will never produce fruit. you got to grow up into him in all things. So the enemy will try to obstruct us by keeping us in the juvenile phase where it's all about me and it's all about what I want and it's all about about my emotions and I'm going to go to church to that church because I get what I need there and and you go there and all you are focused on is give me give me give me give me give me there comes a time when you grow up in God and instead of saying praying prayers like God I pray that you would bless me today you start praying prayers like this Lord I pray that you would show me someone that I can bless today that's a spiritually mature prayer there comes a time in our life when we have to grow into that place. The enemy wants to obstruct our growth. He wants us to get caught up in wrong emotions. He wants us to get caught up in the wrong place. And in so doing, he can stop us from growing in Jesus. And Jesus warned us against the enemy who tries to obstruct us. And then in verse number 14, this is the second one, and most of them we're not, not going to talk this long about. But in verse number 14, Jesus warned against financial opportunists in the church. And he specifically talked about those who were taking advantage of widows. Let me give you an example. And, I, and I'm going to give you some pastoral advice. You know, I've told you before, I'm not an evangelist, I'm a pastor. When I go out and preach, sometimes that evangelistic anointing comes back on me. But I'm a pastor. I break the word down. I teach you the word to help you grow in God. If you're ever in a situation where they're raising an offering and they're asking you to go to the bank and take out a mortgage on your house so you can come back and give a big offering to God, would you do yourself a favor and the kingdom of God a favor and get up off of your blessed assurance and take the first holy exit you can find? There is absolutely no place in Scripture that teaches us that we should mortgage our life to give. In fact, God's Word says this 
Owe no man anything but to love one another. Well, pastor, what about the early church when the Bible said that, you know, Peter was preaching and there were 5,000 that, that gave their life to Christ and 3,000 gave their life to Christ and church history says that in the first six months, John Polycarp was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem and it grew to 60,000 and the Bible said that they took everything that they had and they sold it and they brought it to the church and they dispersed it so no one had need and things like that. Well, first of all, let me say, let me say this. If that's what they did, that's wonderful and that's great and that is what they did because the scripture says that. But there's absolutely nothing in that that says anything about mortgaging anything. They sold what they owned. Did you hear me? They sold what they owned. So, so I think that God's Word teaches us that we should be very cautious of people who use the sacred pulpit, this holy sacred place. I think we should be very cautious of people who try to encourage us to mortgage our lives so we can give big to God. And, and the terms that are used is sow, because if we get the seed in the ground, we'll get a harvest. How can you sow something you don't own? If you borrow money, it don't belong to you. So who's going to get the harvest, you or the bank? The bank's going to get the harvest. You know why? You know who's going to give it to them? You are. In the form of interest. This is practical stuff. This is teaching. This is biblical teaching. we got to be careful. Now listen, if God speaks to you to give something big, go ahead and give it. But let me tell you something. God will never ask you to give what you don't have. Okay? So don't put your gift on your credit card. You're not going to get this teaching everywhere. <laughs> There's some people that are, give, 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 give. I don't care. I don't care. Just give and trust God to give it back to you so you can pay the bill at the end of the month. And no, 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 no. You get yourself in trouble that way. You get yourself in trouble that way. Jesus warns us against financial opportunists in the church. Then verse number 15. Wow, I've been 25 minutes already. Verse 15, Jesus warns us against people who proselyte. And he warns us against being a person who proselytes. That's verse 15. God is against people who destroy God's work by causing divisions. The Bible said that there are six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And one of those things is those that cause division among the brethren. And so God is not into dividing, listen very closely, God is not into dividing, God is into duplication. 2 Timothy 2.2, teach those who will teach others also. And so if we are supporting a ministry that is maybe someone else that, that they feel the call of God on their life to go plant a church somewhere. First of all, God is not in, in you dividing a church to go start your own. All right? That's not God's way. It's just not God's way. But God is into 
you sitting under leadership and sharing your heart with that leadership and then that leadership working with you and saying, where is God calling you? And then giving the church the opportunity to help you get started. And when that happens, then we have the ability to help sow into a ministry that is being planted, not a ministry that is starting as the result of division. Because God's not in a division. Very few churches that I've ever seen in the 41 years that I have been preaching this message, very few churches that I have seen that are successful. In fact, I don't know of any that's really stupendously successful that's done this, but very few churches that I've seen that are successful are churches that were started as a result of division. Every ministry that I have ever seen that has been very successful is a ministry that was a planting of the Lord. And there's a difference in planting a church and splitting a church. And you can take that, and I'm speaking because this is the area that I work in, but you can take that in your business too. Somebody come into your business, they'll want to go start their own business. You got a good worker, a couple of good workers in your business. If you don't watch it, I've seen this happen. If you don't watch it, You'll be off bidding another job, and they'll be over here working on a job talking to those two people. Let's go start our own thing. Let's leave them high and dry. Let's go start our own thing. God's not in that. God's not in that. He's not in that at all. And so there's, God can't bless that. Look at your neighbor and say, God can't bless a mess. So Jesus warns against proselyting. Then verses 16 through 22, Jesus warns against being involved with people who twist the word of God to get out of taking care of spiritual obligations. Oh, I want the word of God to say this, so I'm going to get me a scripture from over here, take it completely out of context, and then I'm going to get me a scripture over here, take it completely out of context, I'm going to put them together and make them say this. No, the Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So God is not pleased when we twist his word to try to get out of fulfilling spiritual obligations such as tithing or giving or, uh, or you know, forgiving your enemy <laughs> like the ex-husband or the ex-wife that keeps taking you to court. Are we starting to dig around where we're living now? You see what I'm saying? So Jesus is against being involved with people who twist his word to try to um, get out of taking care of spiritual obligations. So here's what happened. The, the Pharisees would muddy the water through technicality. They would try to ask Jesus questions to try to muddy the water through technicality. The bottom line is this. Just remember this. If, if God is involved, it's holy. Did you hear me? If God is involved, it's holy. Then the fifth thing that Jesus warned us about is found in verses 23 and 24, where Jesus warned us against what I call disproportionalism, which means uh, only focusing on what you want instead of the larger picture. So God, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray about this part because this is the part that I want you to work on, but everybody else can just fend for themselves. And, and Jesus is not happy with that. That's not how we're supposed to live our lives. He's not happy with that. 
listen, I need to pray for you and you need to pray for me and we both need to pray for everybody else. I'm not in competition with the church down the street. I won't got to, listen, there's 500,000 people in Pasco County and according to the Church Barna Research publication, only 6% of them go to church on Sunday morning. You're not going to get in a traffic jam going to church on Sunday morning in Pasco County. You might at the drug house and you might at the party place and you might at this or that, but you're not going to get in a traffic jam going to church on Sunday morning. Not in Pasco County. So there's enough lost people to fill up the church down the street and the one down the other way and the one on the other side of the county and to fill this church up too. And so we need to quit trying to compete with one another and we need to start completing one another. Working with one another. Encouraging one another. And instead of saying, God just bless my forehead no more, let's say, God, I pray that you would pour your power out on Pasco County. I pray that it would become known as the county of revival. Let's change what Pasco County is known for. Lord, oh, I pray there would be a county of revival. If someone's involved in drugs and alcohol, they can run to Pasco County to get not, a fi not another drug fix, but they can get fixed by the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. So if we start praying that way, and then here's, now I'm a little bit radical with this, and some of my Baptist and Methodist and Lutheran brothers and sisters aren't going to be very happy with me about this, especially when some of them watch it on live stream later, but I'm praying that God fills you and your church with the Holy Ghost. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Because the Bible says ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Power to do what? Power to witness. What's the greatest witness to a drug addict? The greatest witness to a drug addict is another drug addict who's experienced deliverance from, from, from drug addiction and from addiction and they have a testimony that they can't explain except for God. Amen. Amen. And so it's important for us to shy away from disproportionalism. It's important for us to shy away from just saying, God bless us for and no more. See, there's a problem when religion becomes more important than relationship. There's a problem when ritual becomes more important than realism. The Bible, called, the Bible addresses it like this. He said, in the last days, people would strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. That's crazy, isn't it? That's good. Strain at a gnat and swallow a camel? I don't think I'd even like camel meat. I don't know. Number six, verses 25 and 26, Jesus warned us of people who are outwardly religious, but inward they're full of dead men's bones. That means they have the flesh, but they don't have the substance. Let me help you here. Just because someone looks anointed, sounds anointed, preaches anointed, sings anointed, presents themselves as anointed, doesn't mean they're anointed. The devil can prophesy too. The devil can preach too. Hello. He can even simulate a miracle. Well, how can he do that? He can put sickness on you, have someone pray over you, and then he can lift the symptom off of you. And it looks like the devil created a miracle. Got to be careful. 
We have to be discerning, don't we? We have to be discerning. So Jesus warns us that we've got to be careful of those who are outward, outwardly religious, but inwardly they're full of dead men's bones. That means they have absolutely no substance. And the last thing that I want to share with you here today that Jesus was warning us against is found in verses 27, 20. Actually, let me give you Psalms 51 and 6, which goes along with the last one. Warning, Jesus warning us of outwardly religious, but inwardly they're full of dead men's bones. Psalms 51 and 6 says this. It says, Behold, you desire truth in the inner being. Make me, therefore, to know wisdom, God, in my inmost heart. What does the Bible say about the Word of God? It says, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against God. You cannot physically see my heart, but you know I have one because I'm standing up here alive. It's the things that are unseen that matter the most. I, f I feel the Holy Ghost right here. God wants me to dig into this for a minute. I know it's getting late, but I need to dig into this for a minute. Listen very closely. Little things matter. Small hinges swing big doors. Did you hear me? Small hinges swing big doors. Pay attention to the thoughts and the intents of your heart. Fill your heart with the Word of God. Fill your heart with the presence of God. Let the compassion of Jesus come inside of you because out of the abundance, whatever your heart has the most of, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth is going to speak. I can talk to you for 60 seconds and know whether you've been in the Word. I can, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The last thing is verse 27 and 28. Jesus warned us against those who cannot be accountable. Don't be around people who can't be accountable. The most effective leadership that I have ever seen, and we train this and we teach this, and I have for years, the most effective leadership that I have ever seen is leadership that is both in authority and under authority at the same time. Accountability is godly. Look at your neighbor and repeat that. Say, accountability is godly. Is godly. We are accountable up, we are accountable down, and we are accountable right here. You're accountable to me, I'm accountable to you. I'm accountable to those that are over me in the Lord. I'm accountable to those that are under me in the Lord. What does that mean? That means we're in this thing together. I have a spiritual accountability to you. You say, well, how is that manifested? I don't just get up here and open my mouth and just whatever flies out, flies out. I have a spiritual accountability before God as the person that He has appointed as the shepherd of this flock to feed the flock of God. The Bible says, until the day of repentance... So I have a spiritual accountability to make sure what I am giving you is not just laced with the Word of God, but it is word-heavy. I have a spiritual responsibility to give that to you. And that's what God is trying to teach us today. He's trying to teach us to be accountable, be accountable to our brothers, be accountable to our sisters, be accountable to God. And here's, here's probably the biggest one of them all, be accountable to the lost. Did you know that when, a, when, when the Lord nudges your heart, you know, not, not all of the time, you know, you got to wait for it. Let me say it like this. You got to wait for the fruit to get ripe for the picking. 
Some of you that have been in, on farms in the past, like I have, understand what that is. You've got to wait for it to get ripe for the picking. You can't just go pick a mess of young stream beans. You've got to wait for them to get ripe for the picking. Okay? And not everybody is ripe for the picking, but there'll come a time when you'll be walking through Walmart and the Holy Spirit will nudge you and, and say, see that person right over there? Maybe you need to go talk to them and just strike up a conversation and see if maybe you can interject God somewhere. Sometimes we're the sower, sometimes we're the waterer, sometimes we're the reaper. Okay? So we're accountable to the lost. The lost need our message. They need us to be faithful, and they need us to be accountable. Amen. Come on, Charles. Let's, let's all stand. Thank you for listening to Dr. Jonathan Vorse on Working the Word. We appreciate your love and support. Visit www.jvorse.org to give a gift today. Don't forget to subscribe and enjoy the rest of your day. Always remember, the Word will work if you work the Word. Be blessed.